Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My patient today, Lori Woolever, spent nearly a decade working as Anthony Bourdain's main lieutenant. She's now the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography, and the co-author with Bourdain of World Travel and a Reverend Guide. In today's session, we talk all about Lori's time in college. It was like I, I smoked a ton of pot. I was like really into the Grateful Dead and Fish and all of the, you know, embarrassing cultural baggage that goes along with that. And I just wanted to be with like the cool kids and like hang out outside and be a, you know, whatever a hippie is in 1992, 93. Hating culinary school. I, I didn't, I ended up not hating it, hating it, but I think it was pretty clear right away that I was not like constitutionally cut out to be a restaurant cook. And her insights into Bourdain himself. Even though he was somebody who was very frank about his heroin use as a younger man and and getting over it, I don't know that he ever really framed himself as an addict. Uh, And and I think that it's important. It's an important part of understanding who he was and how he could have gotten to a place in life where he made the decision to end his life. So without further ado, here's my lunch therapy session with Lori Woolever. Um, well, Lori, it's so nice to finally meet you. Thanks for doing lunch therapy. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm, I am in desperate need of some therapy right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you have two books out. I have gotten my hands on both of them and they're both really cool and, and fascinating. And they seem like they were a lot of work. And um, what's it like now having them out in the world? Uh, it's mostly a relief. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they have taken up my life for the past three and a half years or more really in the case of world travel, which really got started in 2017. So yeah, it's nice to have them out in the world. They've both, um, done really well. I mean, not to be a dick, but they both <laughs> hit the New York times bestseller list yes. in the first week. So that's, you, d- you deserve great. it. There's not, not being a dick. <laughs> you can take, you can take pride in your own accomplishments. So that's All great. Right. Well, thank <laughs> you. Uh, so yeah, it's exciting. And then it's also, I know that I'm, I'm kind of starting to feel now the sense of like, Oh, what's, you know, what's now what, I mean, I have mm-hmm. some other things going on and uh, but I don't know that there's ever going to be anything that's that's this uh, high profile and this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, well compensated. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a little bit I think it's it's probably the the sense of sort of uh, strange lostness and, and a little bit of letdown that everybody feels when you've worked hard on a project. It's out in the world and then, you know, the world moves on and then it's like, oh, man, you know, how do I get attention now? How do I get validation now? <laughs> Well, it's actually a funny subject for you because as I was reading the books and as I was thinking about having you on, I feel like everything that you're doing right now and all the promotions for the books are really about Bourdain and your relationship to him. But one thing I don't know a lot about is actually you mm-hmm. and like your story and like you. Mm-hmm. And so as you talk about that, it's almost like you're stepping out of that role and into your own identity in a way, like going mm-hmm. forward. Um, and I'm wondering if that's part of the anxiety too, is like, having worked alongside someone who was such a giant and such a huge figure in the food world, if it's difficult to sort of then decide, okay, like now what do I want to be and where I want to be and who I want to be? Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know if it's difficult to figure that out, I, but you know, I'm not like a spring chicken, so I've definitely had some <laughs> years to, to think about it. Uh, but yeah, I mean the, you know, the big sort of 
the, the, the very beginning of my career as a food writer. And then the last, you know, several years have been with, you know, in the shadow of, or, or working in the service of like two br- pretty big personalities, one being Mario Batali, who I was an assistant to for three and a half years and did some writing with, and then Tony, who I was, you know, I was his assistant for uh, nine years. And then I've spent the last three and a half since his death working on these books. So mm-hmm that's defined a lot of my career is, is, you know, who I've worked for and who I've been sort of um, in the shadow of, Uh, you know, I have also done my own writing uh, independent from, from them, but certainly what gets the most attention and what really moves the needle is, is being in proximity to, you know, great power and popularity. So um, yeah, I I don't, I don't know that that's really, uh, I, I don't, think that I probably will f- move into that position again. Although, you know, you always have to serve somebody as Bob Dylan said. Right. <laughs> oh, kill me for quoting Bob <laughs> Dylan within the first five minutes of this interview. You're doing but, great. Um, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> this is therapy. There's no judgment here. So quote right, whoever you, you want. Yeah. No one's but, listening. No, <laughs> but it's like, no, well, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> if, um, well, I, I, I mean, having read the book, I mean, it makes me think immediately of the description of Bourdain as um, just sort of like the narcissism inherent in being that successful. And that I forgot who it was. That's like, basically like you almost have to be um, damaged or broken to like want it that badly, like to just to, to have the ego or to need that kind of attention to always want more and always want that gratification and always want the limelight mm-hmm. on you. And it feels like with you, I mean, just based on the jobs you just described, it's not about you being in the limelight. It, it really feels like for you, it's about doing the work. And what's interesting mm-hmm. about the oral history is I, I noticed when I was reading it, it feels like you kind of disappear in it. It's like, you're there in the introduction mm-hmm. and then it's all these interviews with all these people. And, and throughout, I was like, I wonder what Lori was doing in this scene or like what, what, mm-hmm. what her take on this scenario is. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of interesting. It feels like you're truly a writer in the sense that um, it's not about you. It's about the story you're trying to tell, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's a very flattering thing to, you know, to say, and I I appreciate it. Uh, You know, I I think I am there and I've talked about this a lot uh, in in interviews. I I think that I am there in the sense that I chose, you know, who I was going to speak with. Of course, I had a lot of consultation and conversations, but ultimately it was my decision of, of who to speak with, what questions to ask them. You know, I went in with my own uh, research and preparation, and then of course made lots and lots of decisions about what to actually include in the book, because there were, you know, I probably had, I don't know, between hundred and 200 hours of taped uh, conversation with people. So you have to really narrow that down in order to tell the story. So in the same way that maybe, and this, maybe this sounds very self-aggrandizing, but in the same way that a director uh, or a screenwriter isn't really in the in the final product of a film. They're really there, you know, in mm-hmm. every second of it because they right. have shaped it and made all of the, the decisions. Um, you know, our editor Daniel Halpern did say at some point, "Why don't you uh, have some one have someone interview you and then mm-hmm. include, you know, your uh, recollections in the oral biography?" So I did have someone interview me, and ultimately, I just you know it was a really useful exercise, and I think we both got a lot out of the conversation, but ultimately it, well, first of all, I had somebody who was a little bit reluctant to be interviewed for the book. I said, well, why don't you interview me? And then that mm-hmm. kind of softened him up. And then he, later he agreed to, to let me interview him. Uh, but ultimately I, I thought, well, there's nothing that I have, none of these, none of my stories are so 
they don't necessarily move the narrative forward that much. And, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, as compared to a lot of the people in the book, I didn't spend that much time in the same room as Tony. I mean, we had a very close working relationship, but a lot of it was, uh, you know, from different places because of how much he traveled and because certainly at the beginning, you know, I was, when I started as his assistant, I was a uh, a mom with a, with a newborn at home. So I wasn't traveling. I wasn't going to an office, you know, I was really kind of like sitting in my apartment for big stretches of time. So yeah, I just, I just felt like, I don't know, it, it wouldn't, to me, it didn't, it wouldn't have added anything to put my stories in there. And I think it may have even taken away, uh, you know, or been a little bit distracting to have me kind of breaking in as me. Um, so I left myself out and I, I feel good about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And actually, it's interesting to talk about it because it does make me feel like your presence is there and how also in like in what you include to choose, like, I'm sorry, what you choose mm-hmm. to include mm-hmm. um, about about the portrait of him and especially towards the end where it's really starting to feel like he's starting to change a bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are things that he does and stories that are included that, you know, if, if somebody wanted, I mean, I think you said in your introduction that this isn't a hagiography, this isn't mm-hmm. meant to just all be flattering. So I think that absolutely there's an authorial sense of, I want to paint a full portrait of Bourdain. So absolutely you're present. Um, but I guess also it's, there's a, there's a certain egolessness about it, I guess is what I was trying to say, which mm-hmm. I admire about the book. It's not about you so much as right. it is about him. So Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do struggle with ego. So again, I'm very, (laughs) my ego is gratified by hearing that, (laughs) that I haven't allowed it to uh, seep into the work in a negative way. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, um, you know, I think I still do. I mean, I have my own perspectives. I have my own, you know, stories, some of which I've, I've written uh, for other publications about, you know, nice moments with Tony or, you know, uh, useful or introspective moments with Tony, but uh yeah, you know, I felt that there were so many people that that had, uh, you know, different perspectives from mine and and, and lo- a lot more experience, you know, one on one with the person in the same space. So I kind of wanted to let the let them have, you know, their there was the pages go to them and let them tell their stories. And I painted such a full portrait. I mean, by the time I finished, it was like I, I was sad. I was I was kind of like not not joyful but like sort of like happy for the life that he led I mean there was just like Mm -hmm. all kinds of mixed emotions and just what a complex person he was and so so smart but also in so many ways like sort of not not self-aware enough to understand what he was doing so like there's just a lot of layers to it but before Mm -hmm. we go too down this Bourdain rabbit hole I think we Mm -hmm. need to shift the attention now onto you um, by asking you uh what did you have for lunch today so I had uh some leftovers. Uh, last week was it? Last week, I think I made um, a big batch of a variation, a much greener, uh, ver- and uh, variation on the extremely controversial Allison Roman stew, the chickpea coconut stew. It's not extremely controversial, but you know, I yeah. suppose it's it's one of the things that people like to argue about and talk about when they talk about Allison Roman, whom I know personally and like quite a lot, just want to mm-hmm. put that out there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I really, you know, I like the stew, uh, it, it, and, uh, and I made a batch of it last week and, uh, put like three or four times the amount of greens in it that, um, that mm-hmm. are called for in the recipe and none of the herbs, because I don't know, sometimes I buy herbs and I use as many as I need for a recipe. And then they end up like a black 
clump of slime in my, <laughs> um, in my fridge. So anyway, and then I, uh, stuck the immersion blender into it and made mm. it kind of, um, uh, more soupy and more, a little bit more homogenous, but left some chunks too. Anyway, I ate a couple of portions of it last week. And then I went away for a long weekend. So I stuck it in the freezer and I had that, uh, I had a, a portion of it today for lunch. It's delicious. I, I mean, not to make this about me momentarily, but I did a very similar thing last week where I made a soup with, um, white beans and like all kinds of vegetables and greens and I froze it. And then I just got a microwave after 20 years. So um, I microwaved my frozen soup yesterday and it was delicious. So I'm right there with you. God bless a microwave. I mean, yeah. it's not for everyone, but I, I can't imagine I've never not had a microwave in all my adult and, and really like, since I was a kid, I just, I have no snobbery about it. Yeah. I think it's great. Like, am I going to cook a Thanksgiving turkey in it? No, but like <laughs> it is, you know, for frozen stuff, for reheating, reheating leftovers, uh, the, you know, it's great. It's making a comeback, I think, because David Chang and Priya Krishna have a book coming out about the microwave. And and I feel like, yeah, there's like a new attitude, like it's a class thing to like frown upon a microwave. And so mm -hmm. I think I think I took in that Alice Waters -y like thing for a while, like, oh, I can't have a microwave in my kitchen. But now I'm over that. Yeah, they're great. Okay, well, let's analyze your lunch for a little bit. Well, the first okay. thing that occurred to me as you were talking through your lunch, sometimes I just listen to like how a person describes their lunch and it just mm. immediately caught me with the Allison Roman Roman of it all. It feels like that piggybacked nicely off of the Bourdain of it all and then mm. um, even the Mario Battaglia of it all, which is to say like that you do you gravitate to controversial figures and what's your relationship to that? And, mm. and has that always been true? I don't think I gravitate to controversial figures. Um, I do think that I get along well with people who have uh, big personalities and who have a lot to say and who are, you know, who are sometimes a lot. Um, uh, you know, with Mario, he wasn't controversial at all when I started working for him, I which was, you know, I got hired at the end of 1998, fresh out of cooking school. So he wow. was, you know, he, he had a big personality and he was a lot and took up a lot of space, but he was not, uh, not widely known to be controversial. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you could make the case that he was already, you know, maybe doing things that were, that were controversial, but, um, you know, I, I found him to be, you know, charismatic and exciting and smart and sometimes very mean. And, mm. you know, I definitely cried at work and, uh, and, and I learned a lot. And uh, sometimes I had a hard time. Sometimes I had a great time. And then after about two and a half years, I knew I, I was done in terms of, you know, needing to sort of see what else was available to me. And I gave a, a one year notice of leaving because I, mm -hmm. you know, he loyalty was so important to him. And he made that so clear that I thought I need him to know what I'm thinking now so that it doesn't, you know, because if I were to say, you know, sorry, buddy, in two weeks, I'm out of here and I'm going to go work for, you know, so-and-so it would just, I'd seen it go down in, in very mm -hmm. ugly ways that people who left were sort of like the ultimate Judas. So Anyway, uh, so that was Mario. Uh, with Tony, Were you with him during the um, Molto Mario period, like when he had the show on the Food Network? And yeah, uh, the sort of the second era of that. Or the, yeah, he already had he had he had done a season or two of Molto Mario, and then I think it was on a long hiatus, and then we started up again, I believe, in 2000, 2001. Uh, and that was the the first uh, 
time that they had, they had a new set, they had a new director, and there was uh, the, the the sort of peanut gallery of three yes. guests that he Jake was- Jake Gyllenhaal and the cast of The Sopranos and all those yeah. people. I mean, so that I watched was... that, yeah, religiously. I mean, I think mm. I'm a good cook probably because I watched that so often because he, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's so weird to talk about him now, but like when he would do that show, it was extraordinary how much food he would make. And it'd be like, in like 30 minutes, he would make like an appetizer, an entree, a pasta and a dessert or something. would be like, mm-hmm. how did he just do that so yeah that's well cool. I mean the answer is like you know 15 cooks and producers and uh, you know a lot of swap outs a lot you know you had you know six stages of every dish available but also I mean not to downplay it like he you know for his well-documented faults and crimes he uh was very good <laughs> at um you know very good at making food television a really good educator I mean so so much knowledge there and really able to impart the knowledge in an entertaining way in a short amount of time while cooking. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this it's, it's multitasking and entertainment and not everybody can do it. He was really good at it. Uh, my, my era there was a little bit before it got so celeb heavy, like mm-hmm. occasionally there would be a random celeb and they would just kind of come in and not be declared. But for the most part, when I was there, the guests were, bartenders, cooks, waiters, uh, and then the occasional Rocco Despirito or Ed Levine. Um, oh yeah. I can't recall if there was ever anybody, you know, with a higher profile than that when I, when I was there, but then, you know, then the, the true, uh, celeb era came after I was done. Right. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that was, uh, my time with Mario again, it was, it was great. And it was also terrible. <laughs> Um, I can and... see that. I mean, it's funny because I remember, I mean, he was one of my first heroes who quickly I got disabused of, like when I moved to New York and I met somebody who worked at one of his, Lupa, like a way, and he was like, oh my God, he is a monster. Like the way he got treated. So I was just, that was my first sense of, okay, maybe people that you love on TV aren't exactly who you think they are. Um yeah. Okay, then you were going to say then you went to go work for Bourdain after that? Yeah, well, that, there was a long stretch where I, uh, I, I, so I stopped working for Mario and then I uh, did a bunch of things uh, for a year or two. I kind of was bouncing around doing catering cooking. I had a couple of private cooking clients. Uh, I did a stretch at uh, in the back of Italian wine merchants, which uh, had a, I don't know if they still do, but there was a catering space and party space and there would be these you know, like 75 bros from Citibank would come in and we would do like heavy appetizers and and wine pairings. Uh, And I did a lot of freelance writing in that time. And I got hired and fired from a book project uh, in in a short amount of time. And then eventually I took a job at Art Culinaire magazine um, and I was a totally unqualified uh, executive editor of that magazine, which I did for two years. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And then I moved on to Wine Spectator and I was there for a number of years. Uh, And then once I had my kid, I was like, I I don't want to work full time. I don't want to commute into Manhattan every day. Let me see if I can figure out some other way to live. And that's when I started working for Tony. Well, it's interesting. So I keep, I, we kind of kind of keep circling back to the same thing, which is that like, I keep wanting to get you out of the shadow of other people, but mm, we end up mm-hmm. going back into it. But I kind of wanted to ask you what the path was to culinary school. Like, where did you grow mm. up? What was mm-hmm. your relationship to food and cooking? And, um, and how did you end up there? 
Sure. Uh, so I grew up um, in a small in a village outside of Syracuse called Chittenango, which, you know, population 5,000, maybe. I've never heard of that. That's yeah, so cool. no one has, <laughs> except uh, that it is the birthplace uh, in like 1857, I think, of L. Frank Baum, who was the author of the Wizard of Oz books. Sure. Um, I think he was born there and his family was out like in a year. Like, I don't think that the, this village had any bearing on his, um, uh, you know, his author, his, his life as an <laughs> author and writer. But anyway, he was born there. It's a big deal for the town. There's Yellow Brook Road running through the town. There's a lot of businesses named after, you know, huh. uh, facets of the Oz story. And, um, you know, it's a very nice, uh, safe and super homogenous place to grow up and a really good place to react against and to leave as quickly as was possible for me. Uh, I went to Cornell, I studied natural resources, uh, and then right away uh, moved to New York when I was done with college. I started to cook um, just kind of as a, as a way to feed myself in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really cook that much as a kid. My mom really kind of handled that. And um, I think I've inherited this trait that she had where she wasn't really interested in sharing the kitchen. Uh, you know, we would do baking projects together and stuff uh, on the weekends, but there was no like come in here and let me show you how to dice a pepper. You know, it was just like, stay out of the kitchen, set the table, do your homework, you know? Oh, interesting. Um, So I really had very little skill in the kitchen um, uh, as a college student. And I learned, you know, various things from friends. And then I joined a a, a co-op house where you would be part of a team that would cook uh, either dinner or brunch once a week for the whole house. Um, So I learned some things there. I got a copy of one of the Moosewood cooks cookbooks. I think mm-hmm. it was like the international uh, cookbook. And that was kind of my first cooking teacher where there's really, they do get into some technique and I was a vegetarian at the time. So it was, you know, it, it Molly for Katzen, me. is that who wrote that? Uh, I think so. This might've been one of those post Molly Katzen period books that was written sort of like by the collective. Like, I don't recall that there is a, a, a one credited author for that one, but I'd have to, to look at it. Uh, but it was the, it was the international cookbook. So it had, you know, I was also like, I was learning some basic skills and then also learning some stuff about, you know, foods from around the world that I had never, you know, heard of or tried, uh, you know, having grown up eating, you know, spaghetti and meatballs, steak and French fries, burgers, ham steaks. I mean, it was, you know, I grew up in a, you know, eating like typical American dinner food, you know, what was your family's background like where where were your grandparents great-grandparents like where were they all from mm-hmm. uh my mom's side of the family my grandparents uh had roots in England and Ireland so calling whatever culinary tradition you want to ascribe to those places is probably correct uh and then <laughs> my on my father's side my grandmother had been born in the Ukraine which may have been Poland, uh, you know, when she was born it was, you know, she came over, uh, in like 1915 or something. Um, so she did, there was a little bit of Ukrainian sort of, but it was mostly, uh, like, I don't know, Easter eggs, like beautifully dyed Easter eggs. I don't know that there was much Ukrainian food <laughs> and it. my, and my grandfather on my father's side, uh, they had been in the, in New York state since like the revolutionary war, but they were, um, Palatine Dutch. So again, whatever that means, it didn't really have a, <laughs> bearing on what was on the table but my grandmother on that side really was a tremendous cook and they they were really old people who didn't really go to restaurants or get convenience food or fast food mm-hmm. so you know whenever we would visit it would be like on a sunday in august there would be like a turkey mashed potatoes stuffing mm-hmm. you know six different vegetables from the garden beautiful pies with homemade crusts and homemade mm-hmm. whipped cream 
uh, you know, big glasses of whole milk. I mean, you would just absolutely pass out after lunch, you know, but it was yeah. great. Uh, ginger snap cookies that she would make with, with, you know, saved bacon fat. Um, so that was a beautiful oh, example, wow. uh, uh, you know, of, of like, you know, really uh, rich kind of farm style home cooking, although there was no farm, you know. And this was your father's mother? Yes. Yeah. So you had that example of like a rich, abundant, like food mm-hmm. culture in your family. But, it was, but it's interesting to con- contrast that to the way you described your mother in the kitchen as sort of pushing you out. Like, I, I kind of find that psychologically fascinating to be like mm. pushed out of your mother's kitchen and then mm. creating, I, I mean, I re- I relate to that too, in the sense that, but in a different way, which is that my, my, neither of my parents cooked. So when mm. I went to college and stuff, I started cooking for myself in a way to sort of nurture myself and feed myself. And, mm-hmm. and it became like my own way of like giving my own familial warmth to myself, if that makes yeah. sense. So, so, but it's funny that you had both examples in your childhood that you, yeah. but I was going to ask you, what did you major in in college? You mentioned going to Cornell, but what was your major? Yes. So my major when I started was communications, uh, okay. because, um, I really wanted to be an English major and, um, I, you know, I wanted to be a writer. So, and I wanted to study literature. Uh, Cornell is, is, a um, has, uh, within the university, there are state college divisions and there are private college divisions and obviously the state college uh divisions are much cheaper especially if you're a new york state resident so like there's the college of agriculture and life sciences and that's a state Mm -hmm. college at cornell uh and it was and they had the communications department oddly uh i didn't think about it too hard i was just like all right well you know i we cannot afford for me to go to private arts and sciences at cornell but we can you know, with some loans and stuff, we can swing, you know, this, the state college. So I, I started out of communications and uh, it was not for me. It was very, basically it was communications in the service of uh, agriculture and department of environmental conference conservation. And, you know, it really was, it was an extension of those sort of more public service oriented mm-hmm. things. And it just wasn't, it wasn't what I, I wanted to do books and poetry and right. creative writing, you know, Although so communications I, is related to where you ended up though. I mean, working with Bourdain and stuff, it's like that. It's true. It's like true. Media but I, oriented. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, as a college freshman, I thought I don't want to, I have this one opportunity to be in college. I don't want to spend my time with this, this stuff, you know, which yeah, yeah I, I think it, if I had stuck with it, if I had been smart enough to sort of understand what it was and what I could have gotten out of it, I, I probably, it probably would have been great, but I was just like, eh, it's not, it's not where I was at when I was 18. So I switched to natural resources, uh, which, which I was interested in, in theory, in terms of, you know, environmental conservation, uh, you know, re- honest, I mean, to be honest, it was like, I, I smoked a ton of pot. I was yeah. like really into the Grateful Dead and fish and all of right. the, you know, embarrassing cultural baggage that goes along with that. And I just wanted to be with like, the cool kids and like hang out outside and be a, you know, whatever a hippie is in 1992, 93. So, um, <laughs> <Got> it. <laughs> so that's what I did. Uh, yeah. as it turns out, I didn't really have a great head for science and math. So I struggled a little bit, but I got through, I did all right. You know, I wasn't a terrible student. I wasn't a great student. Uh, and, and so I learned, you know, I learned about forest management and stream management and, you know, mm-hmm. it's some, some, some fairly dry stuff, but you did take a lot of outdoor classes and, you know, it was, it was cool, uh, in some way, uh, but not something that I actually wanted to, to pursue as a career. So, uh, I, but I did my first job out of college was at the, um, Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I thought, well, if I, I had, I had spent a semester in New York as a, as an undergrad and I thought, um, and I had done a, um, urban gardening 
internship. And I liked that. So I thought, well, I really want to live in New York. And here's a skill that I've got, you know, I've got a little bit of experience with this whole ur- urban gardening thing. Maybe I can make a go of that. But um, not so much. I don't know. <laughs> it's too lazy and uh, not invested enough in the whole thing of it to really, you know, make a mm-hmm. career of it. Um, but it was a it was a way for me to get to New York. You know, I I, I had the courage to move to New York because I had a job lined up. Um well, this, it feels like there's like a lot of ambivalence that like it's sort of like you want to do good, but then you're not, you also want to smoke pot. Like it's like, right. but, it kind of, but it kind of is interesting to, th- I, I keep, I know I keep bringing it back to Bourdain in the book, but there, there seems to be a parallel there with like him going to like Madagascar. I, keep, I, I was thinking about like seeing the poverty that he saw on those trips, but then also making a TV show and like being mm-hmm. a star, like that seems mm-hmm. similar in a weird way to like, you're, you're kind of vacillating back and forth between like, you know, doing public goods and or doing public service but then also not and I don't know there's something in yeah. there that I find kind of interesting so that's um, yeah that's, I never that's really where my brain went yeah. yeah I love it I never really considered that that parallel but it's true it's like you want to you want to be a good person you want to make it leave you know leave a positive impact on the world but you also want to like have a good time and indulge your you know your passions that are mm-hmm. not necessarily uh you know the most high-minded <laughs> Yeah. And by the way, like smoking pot in college and like not knowing what you want to do with your life is probably a healthier path than I think just immediately being like, I'm going to be this. And then just doing that for the rest of your life. It's like, then you never got a chance to like search within yourself and figure out who you are. So I think it's, I don't think there's any shame in that. Yeah. It's, you know, it's who I was. I mean, I certainly knew plenty of people who were like, I'm going to medical school and never deviated from that path. And, you know, and then plenty of people in the middle, but that just wasn't who I was, you know, having, I mean, I still, I'm like, hmm, what should I do with this? <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. That's why I'm doing this podcast. And like, maybe people will tell me what to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when, when did culinary school kick in? That was right after uh, right, living right. by yourself. Yeah. So that, that was your question. Uh, so I went to, <laughs> I moved to New York after college and uh, after I quit uh, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden after about six weeks, the job that I really wanted that I applied for, didn't get, and then ended up getting a few weeks later was as a private cook for a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I didn't have a lot of skills, but I had, I had some skills that I had sort of uh, put together in college, you know, basic like cooking skills. And this family, what they wanted was somebody to do really basic food. This was the nineties. People were still very uh, on this fat-free thing as far mm-hmm. as, you know, having a healthy uh, diet. So I was able to do, you know, whole wheat spaghetti with a jar of sauce and steamed vegetables and, you know, a grilled chicken breast and the food that they wanted to eat. Um, I was able how did to you get the, How did you get this job? I mean, where did you even hear about this job? It was in the New York Times. I mean, this was, you know, this, this was 1996. And when you used to get the New York Times on Sunday, there would be an enormous uh, help wanted section, sometimes even two sections of a newspaper, just full of any kind of job you can imagine. And now I think it's like a page of the business section or something. It's just, you know, things just weren't online yet, you know, as far as jobs stuff. So yeah, it was under like household help wanted, you know, and I just not knowing, I, I looked at every section of the help wanted, you know, thing because I was like, I don't know what, you know, what am I qualified for? Not very much as it turns out, but I thought, well, maybe I'm qualified for this. Uh, so I applied for it. They, they interviewed me. They ultimately hired somebody who had professional training and then they quickly fired her because she just couldn't really, she couldn't 
walk back her skill set. Mm-hmm. You know, she was like, well, but I'm going to add butter because it tastes better, you know, and she right. was just doing things at the level that she wanted to. And they were like, no, we really just want, you know, a vegetable steaming robot. And that was, you know, I was very <laughs> willing to do that. And it was well compensated and I had insurance right away. And, you know, I had a lot of really smart coworkers because it was a family that, hired, uh, you know, very well-educated people to do jobs that didn't necessarily call for it. There were people who had creative pursuits, uh, but needed full-time employment. So. And were your parents, did they, were they pushing you on a certain path? Like, did they, did they want you to do anything in particular or they just sort of like go forth, be free, have fun? Yeah. I, you know, I think, I think they, they recognized that I really hadn't figured out what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I, I remember my dad saying at some point, cause I was sort of applying for a million jobs and taking them and then not taking them. And, you know, I think when I finally settled into this job, my dad was like, you probably ought to like, just stay put for a while, you know, like mm-hmm. this, maybe this, this private cooking thing, isn't your ultimate, you know, destiny, but like, just stick with it for a year or two, you know, uh, which was good advice. Um, no, they, you know, I, I think that they, I think my dad probably would have been very happy for me to go down that environmental conservation path, because that was something that was really important to him. He studied at uh, Syracuse University, has the School of Environmental Science and Forestry, and he got a master's there. And he's a, hmm. was a career chemist, and it was a lifelong sort of conservationist and outdoorsman and, and, you know, really cares very deeply about uh, land use issues and wildlife issues. And, So I think, you know, just for, for the sake of having sort of a, um, you know, someone to sort of pass that on to, I think he would have been very happy with it, but knowing that it wasn't really where my interests lie, he never Mm -hmm. was like, you've got to stick with this for me, you know? So, which I appreciate. Yeah. So then you got to culinary school after that job. Yes. Yeah. So after two years of that job with that family, uh, I, I realized that I really did like cooking that I really didn't know very much. I was, I was always going to be, you know, and I didn't want to do that job forever. Uh, so I thought, well, let me go to cooking school and see if I can get some real skills and see how I like cooking in restaurants. Um, Mm -hmm. so I went to the French culinary Institute in Manhattan, which I Mm -hmm. think has unfortunately just closed. I think it did too. Yeah. We've had a couple of guests or patients, I should say, who've gone mm-hmm, there. And mm-hmm. so, and I had a friend who worked there. So I used to go there when they had that student like um, restaurant where you could eat oh, the yeah. food that they were making. Yeah. Nicole, <laughs> yeah. So you went there. That's great. Yeah. So I, so I did that. Um, you know, this, this is sort of a repeating theme in my, in my uh, career and my educational career too, where I got there. And after about three days, I was like, oh man, I hate this. I don't want to do this. <laughs> it was, I, I didn't, I ended up not hating it, hating it, but I think it was pretty clear right away that I was not like constitutionally cut out to be a restaurant cook. And that was absolutely what the training was. I mean, at that point, especially people didn't go to cooking school to be food writers or to be mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do any of the other number of things you can do with a culinary degree. It really was like, you are here to learn how to be a restaurant cook. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I'm a little bit like lazy. I especially was very lazy then and, you know, pretty out of shape. And it was like, I got to stand up for like all, the whole time and it's <laughs> right. hot and, you know, um, I got to work with people and get along. Like it just, you know, so I love cooking and I, and there were, I'm so glad I have those skills, but I, I was, you know, I knew in my gut that like, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a restaurant cook or at least not for very long that I would do it as, you know, if for the minimum period that I had to do it in order to establish some credibility, but that that wasn't going to be, you know, what I would pursue. 
what changed that? I'm so curious as somebody who's a big home cook, who's never been to cooking school, like when you got out of cooking school and you went back to cooking for yourself or for other people, mm. what was different? Like what, what about your approach changed? Well, you know, it's definitely more organized and more, um, more willing to take risks, I guess, or, you know, much more confident, uh, you know, having successfully, you know, having learned how to build sauces and how to, you know, cook, just how to cook things properly and how to cut mm -hmm. things properly and how to, um, you know, just the basic skills. I mean, I definitely tried to show off for a while. I remember going to my parents' house and, you know, insisting on making like reduced pan sauces. And mm -hmm. they were just like, can we just eat dinner? Like what are you <laughs> doing? <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, I mean, it, it opened up my world and I, and I, I became a, you know, a, a I think a more interesting cook and, you know, a, um, faster, more organized, cleaner. Uh, but I still, I mean, I, I think about the kind of cook I was straight out of cooking school versus now, you know, more than 20 years later. And, you know, I think I've, I've, I just have the, the, the confidence and the sort of internal, uh, timing and whatever that really just comes from repetition, you know, more so than, than six months of intensive, um, training in a, in a school environment. Well, also, I think it prepared you to deal with personalities like Mario Batali's mm. and Anthony Bourdain's because they were chefs. And it's like mm -hmm. that, that experience of being in a kitchen and being in a restaurant kitchen and understanding the philosophy of it and, you know, the group mentality, or just like that everyone's there to get their job done. Like, I don't know. I feel like that must've mm -hmm. put that in your, in, giving you the preparation to deal with those kinds of personalities, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. It was definitely a start. I mean, I always say that, you know, restaurant uh, cooking school was sort of like restaurant high school or rest, maybe restaurant college. And then going to work for Mario was like a graduate program in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really, I learned so much about cooking and business and wine and food and travel, media, real estate, you know, mm -hmm. labor, like just I really was very lucky to be kind of in the center of, of so many different um, aspects of the business. Um, and I did get to cook a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I spent a month cooking in the kitchen at Babo because somebody, mm. somebody had quit very unexpectedly, like right before uh, dinner service on a Sunday night. And I was there, you know, working as Mario's assistant and he was like, all right, get in the kitchen. Hmm. And so I, I filled in at the second garmanger position. I mean, it's like the lowest, you know, the lowest uh, level cook position, uh, for about a month until they, they hired, uh, somebody and got her up to speed. Um, and then, and then there was another time where somebody cut them. I was actually in for dinner sitting at the bar and somebody <laughs> cut themselves during oh, the dinner no. service. So they were like, can you come back here and help us out this person's got to go to the hospital? Um, so I like, you know, I finished the shift, which was really fun, you know? Uh, but I'll, you know, it also kind of reinforced the, my sense that like, I'm not cut out to be, uh, uh, restaurant cook, just temperamentally, you know, like, I think I cry a lot less easily now, but like, I definitely, you know, I would, would get very flustered. I really was so nervous about making a mistake and, you know, mm -hmm. please don't yell at me. And, you know, didn't want to fuck anything up. And it was like, I, you know, all I wanted was to get the food off my station and out of the kitchen. And I didn't, you know, I didn't care enough about how it looked. I think it was always fine, you know, and there were people there, there were stop gaps. Like if a plate really looked terrible, they wouldn't send it out. But mm -hmm. I just didn't have that passion that people talk about that sort of separates restaurant cooks from everyone else. Do you remember like specifically like what dishes you made when you were in the kitchen? Like, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the thing that the, the, my favorite dish to eat and my least favorite dish to make was the, um, it was barely a dish. It was the, um, prosciutto San Daniele. 
because okay. you had to, you know, obviously slice the prosciutto to order. So, you know, you got to go on, get pull, go in your low boy, root around, pull out this big wrapped leg of ham, unwrap <laughs> it, get it on the slicer and then slice it really beautifully, you know? Right. Um, and that's not that easy. I mean, and the, the more you do it, obviously the easier it gets, but you know, you can go too thick, you can go too thin, um, whatever. Uh, and you have to do it fast, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you're also like, I think grilling a piece of toast at the same time. So you're trying to sneak your toast onto the grill where the grill cooks got, you know, like racks of lamb and steaks and all this other stuff going on. And you're like trying to steal a little corner of real estate for that. Uh, and then I think there was also a salad or a mustarda or something that went along with it. So that one was, that was stressful and people loved it. You know, it was like right. such a popular dish. You're like, fuck, no more prosciutto. <laughs> um, there were a lot of salads um, that, so I learned, I learned how to dress a salad to order, uh, which was great. I mean, I, having a hard time. Yeah. There was something that had like squash and goat cheese in it. Um, there was a, there was a polenta thing. There were, um, lamb's tongue salad. That was a fun one. I remember that Uh, on that menu there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, there were, I don't know. There was a, there was like a dish that had citrus and mussels. It was like a cold dish with maybe with some potatoes, uh, a little, my memory is a little fuzzy, but there were, I mean, it was a big menu there were probably 13, uh, items or so that were on the appetizer menu and you had to be, you know, just ready to, to plate them all. Um, so it was, yeah, it was wow. a good experience, but you know, stressful. Well, I was curious, like one thing we kind of skipped over, um, you talked about English, like being interested in English and literature and obviously like that came back later now that you're the author of two best-selling books. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about your journey as a food writer and, and, mm-hmm. and what your, who your influences were and the kind of work you started doing and how that all began for you? Mm. So, yeah, I think there was a point uh, probably quickly, pretty quickly on in, in cooking school where it was like, well, I guess I'm going to, tr- I guess maybe I'll try and be a food writer because I don't see this cook thing really making me happy or working out for me. And I had been, uh, I had been writing, you know, the, the two years, um, between college and cooking school, I had taken a bunch of, um, continuing ed classes at the new school and NYU. Uh, I think that were, there were fiction classes. Uh, and that's where I thought I was going to sort of focus my, my writing energy. And then once I got into cooking school, it was like, well, let's, let's be a little more practical. Um, so when I went to apply for the job with Mario, I said, I wanted to be a, a food writer. And I hadn't really read that much food writing at that point. And there, you know, I don't think it was, there just wasn't as much, you know, it was like the magazines pretty much in the newspapers and there were some books, you know, but I had, I had read MFK Fisher and mm-hmm. I had read uh, uh, pretty much everything that Ruth Reichel had written. So, you know, and I, and I was able to drop those two names in my interview. And he said mm-hmm. that was like a, you know, that was a, a mark in my favor. So, uh, you know, you could see that I wasn't completely full of shit about, you know, <laughs> food writing. Uh, I don't know that either of those two writers were necessarily influences on me. Um, you know, the one, the one piece of writing that, that I sort of felt like, oh, okay, I think I can do this was, uh, not even really about food. It was, um, David Foster Wallace, not to compare myself to him as a writer at all, but, uh, I had gone, no, this was earlier (laughs) than that. I had gone on a, uh, a vacation to Ireland and I kind of just screwed it up. Like I just, I didn't plan very well. I was by myself. I, I, at some point got very sort of paralyzed by like shyness and wasn't like, I just, I kind of just got paralyzed. Like I, I, I was really, really lonely and couldn't figure out how to 
break out of that. And instead of like joining a tour group or meeting people, I just kind of was this weird, lonely little person bouncing around Ireland for two weeks. And I just felt like, oh, I really screwed that up, you know? <laughs> um, and I, on the way home, I think I had bought a copy of uh, his essays. On, and the title, of, the title essay was a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And it was, and I, and maybe I had already even read it before it was in, it was an essay in Harper's magazine too. And it was about his like pretty dismal experience going on a luxury cruise and how, you know, and I had just never read anybody being so honest about something that's supposed to be really wonderful and a, you know, a goal and something that you spend all this time and money trying to achieve. And then you get there and it's actually sort of disappointing and sad. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like, well, this is, this is how I feel a lot of the time, you know, sort of disappointed and cynical and, you know, trying to enjoy things that, that people are, tell you are supposed to be enjoyable, but I, you know, you find them just for whatever reason, really not for you. Um, and so I don't know that I really wrote that way for a long time, but it just gave me the sense of like, oh, this is, this is another way to be in the world. It doesn't have to be always like I ate the most beautiful thing. And I, you know, I had the Madeleine and the oyster and right. you know, like all of that. It was like, I'm going to be really honest about, about my experience. Um, I think David Sedaris also really made me feel like there was a place for me in the world, you know, reading his essays. Um, so yeah, two white men, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and so then, you know, Mario knew I wanted to be a food writer and he was, this is one way in which he was a very generous employer. Um, you know, he said, all right, well, let me, I know everybody, let me connect you to some people. And, you know, he reached out to Kate Crater and I think mm -hmm. he must've sort of asked her to take me under her wing. She was at the, she had been at food and wine for a while at that point, And she continued to be, I think the restaurant editor at food and wine for, for quite a few years after that. And she became a very good friend and, and someone who was just very willing to kind of, you know, show me the ropes and, helped me get uh, introduced to other editors. And, you know, there were a lot of dinners I was invited to. And, you know, I was sort of like the, the new young kid uh, mm -hmm. to come around and, and meet a lot of people. So she was super helpful. I started pitching um, Time Out New York and did a bunch of stuff for them. I did some stuff for Food and Wine um, and maybe a few other publications. Uh, and then after that, I mean, after I, uh, you know, I helped Mario write the Babo cookbook, which was a huge project and a really fulfilling one. Uh, we also did a book called Holiday Food that mm -hmm. came out before the Babo Cookbook, and we did we co-authored a few things, you know, we, uh, a few articles. We did something in the LA Times. We did something for Wine Enthusiast. So, you know, it was positioned really well, you know, around people with power and influence who were willing to share some of that with me, um, uh, which was great. You know, very very lucky. Uh, and I I think I took a, a recipe editing class in that time. Um, you know, and I, just, I just tried to read as much as I could. I, I was definitely like spending a ton of money going out to eat as much as I could and trying mm -hmm. to justify it. Like, well, this was research, you know, but yeah, really it was just me like eating and drinking like a fool. <laughs> I'm still doing that. Yeah. That's why I have no money and no house. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then once I stopped working for Mario, I, right around the same time, I actually got my first, um, New York times byline, which was hugely mm. exciting. And I did a bunch of stuff for them. Uh, yeah, you know, I just, I just kept pitching. I started doing ghostwriting for not ghostwriting, but sort of, um, copywriting for, uh, the Beard Foundation and some advertorial stuff for, uh, the old, uh, incarnation of Bon Appetit when it was still based in LA. Um, you know, I just sort of started adding to my, to my resume. And, and I also got a job with, this is when I first met Tony Bourdain was, 
he needed somebody to write, um, I'm sorry, to edit and test recipes for uh, Anthony Bourdain's Leal cookbook, right. which was published in 2004. So Mario recommended me based on the work I had done with him. And Tony hired me kind of sight unseen, just based on Mario's recommendation. So, uh, you know, that was another credit that I had. Uh, um, and, and that was a great experience, you know, and again, most of my work with Tony was not in person because he was already traveling a lot for television at that point. So we mostly communicated by email and, uh, you know, I'm really proud of that book. I think it's, a, it's held up and I think mm-hmm. the recipes are great and they work and they're very kind of straightforward and, there's a lot of a great, great design to it too. It has that like, you know, rustic kind of like a yeah. color on the cover. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's a butcher paper cover. That's sort of, yeah. that's waterproof on the inside. And mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the photos are printed on rough stock, which was very unusual for that time. And there's actually a section about that in the book Bourdain, the definitive oral biography where the, the editor, um, Karen Rinaldi talks about that, about how the photographer was like, what are you doing with my photos? You know, on this like ugly, rough paper because it was just so just not the way things were done then. And now it's kind of standard, but um, hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful book. So um, so yeah, that was my first uh, intro to, to Tony and I continued to, you know, to freelance uh, uh, f- while I was doing that book and afterward. And then once I got to art culinaire, I really didn't really have time to freelance. I did a little bit, but mostly I was just focused on making that magazine. And then the same with wine spectator where we, we were, if not forbidden, I think we were forbidden or at least heavily discouraged from freelancing uh, for anyone but other uh, titles within the M. Schenken world. So I didn't I didn't freelance that much, but I did a lot of writing for Wine Spectator. So, so I mean, I feel like this flew by, by the way, because we're nearing yeah. the end. Uh, I don't want to I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask you some questions about working for Tony, um, you know, and I guess one of my, my first questions is like how. It's kind of skipping ahead, but like with these books that you've written, I mean, have has it been cathartic for you to be able to kind of revisit him and sort of process all of this? Like, how has how have the books um, affected your ability to process what happened? Yeah, I think definitely they the, working on these books was a really useful tool for processing grief, uh, especially Bourdain, the definitive oral biography, because I was sort of in company with people who knew him, uh, some people that I that I already had existing friendships with and relationships with, and some people that I had never met or had never even heard of in some cases that were, you know, especially mm-hmm. the old friends from the kitchens in the 80s and, um, you know, just people that were part of Tony's early literary career that I hadn't known. Uh, but But I was, you know, spending time with people who had stories, who had things to say, who had memories and, and, uh, you know, a lot of cases, things I didn't know about Tony. So it was very, very helpful and very uh, useful to, to do that, to have that uh, exercise of just talking about Tony for hours Mm -hmm. and hours. Uh, World travel was a little bit less that, I mean, it was Mm -hmm. actually very lonely. And even though it's the more lighthearted of the two books and meant to be sort of more entertaining and more celebratory about, you know, the best of Tony, I found that one to be sort of very difficult and lonely because Mm. we had started it as a co-authored project. And there was a very, you know, there was a vision of of Tony was, was supposed to write a bunch of original essays. And I had already written a book with him. We wrote a cookbook together that came out in 2016 called Appetites. Mm -hmm. So I knew how much fun it was and how rewarding and satisfying it was to co-author something with him. And I was really looking forward to doing it again. 
So to go from that to suddenly be being, you know, the, the, the one person left behind to finish this thing was very, very lonely, you know, and, and, and that one, there was more time pressure, you know, that was, it was due earlier than the biography. So I really had to kind of, you know, spend the summer getting, getting over the initial shock and grief and then sit down and get to work. And it just didn't, you know, there was very little joy in the beginning as time went on, I, you know, I started to feel better. And I, I did have some good conversations with people. I did have to, you know, reach out to a lot of people to ask questions and, you know, get sort of context on places and events. But um, yeah, it was hard. It was really, really hard at first. And I wrote about that in the introduction to that book, that it was a, a much lonelier endeavor than, than I had expected. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, to have the opportunity to have these two projects that, you know, sustained me financially and that gave me a chance for, you know, three and a half years after Tony's death to continue to work with him. And I'm making air quotes um, mm -hmm. uh, and continue to, you know, to be involved with his work was really helpful and really lucky. And I, you know, if he had simply died unexpectedly, and then I would just have to kind of figure out my next move without anything like these projects, I think it would have been much, much more difficult and harder. And mm -hmm. I would have figured it out. I would have no choice, but I'm, I'm glad that I didn't have to just, you know, move on right away from such a, a shocking uh, turn of events. And when you say you weren't with him physically a lot, I mean, with all the travel that he did, were you ever in any of these places that he went? I mean, did you go with him to mm -hmm. some of these countries? And yeah, things? I did. I mean, not not in any official like television production capacity, but I did go on a number of shoots uh, in the last probably five or six years that I worked for him. I went uh, to Vietnam. I went to Japan twice. I went to Hong Kong, Manila. Sri Lanka, I guess that's it. Uh, and then for book tour for Appetites, um, I went to a number of American cities. Uh, mm -hmm. And he, you know, he was, it was but definitely an Anthony Bourdain stage show. I didn't have an official part of it, but just to go along, you know, in part, just cause it's like fun to fly on right. the private jet and, you know, go to all these different cities and stay in nice hotels and kind of, you know, reap the, the validating benefits, even, you know, just by being next to him, mm -hmm. uh, you know, seeing people react to the book in the world. Oh, there's some kind of terrible bug flying around. My, oh no. I think, oh, it's, is it just a moth? I hate moths. Anyway. I sorry. hate moths too, actually. <laughs> um, I was going to say that. So with the oral history or the oral biography that we mm -hmm. talked about earlier, and I was asking you about, you said that some people interviewed you. I guess my question would be like, is, is there anything that if you were to pull something from yourself and include it in there, is there anything that you wish you could have added to it from your point of view? Or is there, you know, um, are there things that you feel um, people don't necessarily understand about him or just certain insights mm. that you have that you weren't able to, to include in the book? No, you know, I mean, the things that I've wanted that I really hoped would come through in the book, uh, I found that there were a lot of people willing to talk about those things. And, mm -hmm. and they were things that I didn't necessarily fully know or understand or recognize when Tony was alive. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about Tony as addict uh, in mm -hmm. the book. And even though he was somebody who was very frank about his heroin use as a younger man and, and getting over it, I don't know that he ever really framed himself as an addict. Uh, and, and I think that it's important. It's a, an important part of understanding who he was and how he could have gotten to a place in life where 
he made the decision to end his life. Um, and I think his, his sort of lifelong tendency toward addictive behavior in any context, um, I think that's a really important thing to understand. And, and people certainly address that in the book. Um, and, and sort of this, this spontaneity, this sort of, uh, very, um, uh, yeah, what's, I'm trying to think of what the other word is, uh, impulsiveness, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in ways that can be really beautiful and really fun and exciting and energizing. And in the same way can be really destructive and really, um, you know, ultimately Mm -hmm. I think that it was the impulsiveness, uh, that, that ended his life. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I can only speculate and I'm not a psychologist and I was not there with him, but, uh, you know, knowing what I know, about him and about, you know, the way that his things were going for him in the last couple of, of days of his life, I truly have to believe that this was a, a spasm of grief and a moment mm-hmm. of, of, you know, a stupid idea that got into his head and he acted on it before he, you know, could, could think rationally. Um, so, you know, and he was a romantic, you know, and I think that probably comes through if you read, when you read his books and watch the mm-hmm. shows, but um, again, maybe I, I don't, I didn't necessarily see it as such, but he was, he was absolutely a romantic. And I think there was a part of him that had an idealized version of the world and of relationships and situations and places and people that could probably never live up to, you know, his his romantic ideals, like the the real life just couldn't ever really live up to it, Mm -hmm. you know? So he was in a position of constantly being a little bit disappointed by things or, or in some cases, very disappointed by things, you know? So I think all of that really did get addressed, um, by people who knew him and, and, um, you know, my own stories are just kind of nice little moments. And, you know, I had some really tremendous experiences traveling with him and, you know, we had some, some great conversations when, when I, I worked with him, but, you know, some of those I I'm fine with, with keeping to myself. And, you know, there, I think there are some, as much as this book very much, you know, I think about what would he what would he think about this book? And he probably would mm-hmm. be parts of it would probably be very mortifying to him. And parts of it yeah. would probably be very gratifying because there's so many people really, um, you know, sharing what they, all of the the great stuff that they saw in him and all of the, the great impacts that he had on their lives. Um, but there, you know, there's everyone always, everyone deserves to have some things that, that remain private, even in a, you know, after they've been, exposed in a, you know, a biography and a film. And, you know, my colleague, Tom Vitale has another book called in the weeds. And he wrote Mm -hmm. very uh, revealingly about his relationship with Tony and his experiences traveling with him. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of Bourdain out there right now. There is. I mean, my only other question about that, and then we'll circle back, but is like towards the end, I mean, there's a lot in there about Asia Argento, I mean, just in the mm-hmm. book itself. And mm-hmm. and I guess, my, I'm just curious from your perspective, do, did you have some of the same similar feelings that a lot of the people you interviewed had about her impact on him? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I Well, I don't think, yes. <laughs> All right, let me take a beat and uh, <laughs> be careful with my, my words. Um, I agree with some of the people in the book that that observed that this was a destabilizing uh, situation for him and not a healthy situation, not a healthy relationship for him. And I think Tony was also aware of that. And that, you know, that comes up in the book as well, that people had had conversations with him where he acknowledged that this was uh 
you know, this was not a, not a great situation and, and not a healthy situation, but that was, it was the choice that he was making. He was aware mm-hmm. that it was, you know, a roller coaster or a train wreck or whatever um, language you want to use that didn't matter. He was, he was willing to take that risk. He wanted to be in it. So, you know, I want to be very clear. There's a difference between knowing that there are two adults who have chosen to be in a destabilizing relationship and, and, you know, but at the same time, not blaming her for his decision to end his own life. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's very fair. I think that unfortunately it feels like some people don't present the story that way. You know, it really feels mm-hmm. like she, she took on a lot of the, the blame, I guess, or a lot of, some people pointed fingers in a way. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I don't think that, I mean, I don't think he would have been in, in the t- tough place he was at had it not been for that relationship. But, you know, it, we can only speculate who's to say it mm-hmm. wouldn't have been something else, someone right. else or some other destabilizing situation that might've gotten him to a, a point of desperation. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of warm feelings about, uh, <laughs> that whole situation. I, I don't, right. you know, I, but I, I will also admit that at the time that it was going on, I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily see it through the, you know, I, I thought, well, he's really happy. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, uh, you know, he's, this is very romantic and it is very exciting for him. And he's having this really incredible sort of peak experience. And, uh, you know, there were some things going on in my own life that were in some ways kind of mirroring that. So I was mm-hmm. like, well, look, Tony's doing it. You know, Tony's really <laughs> like taking the risk and living on the edge. And, you know, it's, uh, I'll take my cues from him, you know, right. um, so yeah, it's, it's a complicated situation. And yeah. I wish, I wish that he had, you know, been in love with, with, uh, someone that had a stabilizing effect on him, but that was not, that was not the path that he chose. Well, I appreciate you being so open and candid about all of this. Um, I'm going to make, give you an easy final question, which <laughs> is always the last question of my podcast, which is, it starts with, what did you have for lunch? But it ends with, what are you having for dinner tonight? Mm. Good question. Uh, I have some chicken thighs in the fridge and my, so far my planning has only includes the chicken thighs. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to probably after we get off this call, I'm going to take them out and salt them and let them, you know, sit uncovered, salted in the fridge for a couple of hours. Uh, And then I'm probably going to walk down to the corner and, and buy some green leafy vegetables uh, and you love then, your green leafy vegetables. I do, I do. <laughs> every day. Gotta, gotta get them in. Um, and then, and so I have a 12 and a half, almost actually almost 13 year old son, uh, mm-hmm. who is with me half the time and with his dad half the time. So he's with me tonight for dinner. So, uh, I'm going to have to find something that's appealing to him and green leafy vegetables are not it. <laughs> so there probably will also be, I don't know, a cucumber or some carrot sticks or something that's a little more interesting to him. And then a, uh, a starch of unknown origin, perhaps uh, some potatoes in the microwave. Oh, bring it full circle. That sounds <laughs> yes. great. Yeah. Uh, well, Laurie, it was so nice to finally meet you and um, congratulations on the books and, the, and how well they're doing. And Thank I'm you. actually very excited to see what you do next. I think it's going to be something really cool. Let's hope. Let's, uh, let's hope it's, it's cool and well compensated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. May that happen for you. Well, thanks again for talking and Good luck with your dinner. Thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Goodbye. Bye.